Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison, and I'm your host. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. We have on the program Ryan Waters, who's our content strategy director here at Grace Story Ministries. Now, he's starting what's going to be the first of three episodes, and these episodes are going to be surrounding the topic of developmental trauma and what that looks in our looks like in our lives today. Now, Ryan Waters, a little bit more about him. Uh, he earned his BA in ministerial education and pastoral counseling, as well as his MA, both from regionally accredited institutions. He has worked extensively with higher education, serving both academically and in student life capacities as an instructor and an administrator. He currently resides in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he works at Counseling Alliance, LLC, specializing in treating sex addiction, developmental and relationship trauma, anxiety, and depression. One of Ryan's areas of focus is developmental and relationship trauma therapy, uh, also known as DART. And Ryan went through special training that equipped him to help individuals understand how their life experiences from childhood to present have shaped the story of their lives and who they are today and how that also affects how their relationships are today. Time was spent understanding key moments in every person's life story and how those moments connect with the broader developmental portrait, you might say. So the goal was to increase growth and vitality into a, a functional adult. Um, Ryan, did I get all that right? Yeah, that's an excellent job. Well, Ryan, it's good to have you on here. And I, I want to just jump right in talking about development of trauma. It, it almost sounds like a buzzword, something cool that you might Google uh, or, or claim or, or I don't know. But what is developmental trauma? It might be helpful to take a step back further and define what trauma is as a whole. So Bessel van der Kolk, one of the leading experts on understanding trauma and its impact on the body, he defines it as an event that overwhelms the central nervous system, altering the way we process and recall memories. And so what happens essentially is the body just gets overwhelmed with more than it can handle. And either it moves into fight, flight, or freeze and gets stuck there. And it's hard for it to know the past from the present. So when you're talking about trauma, we're talking about uh, motor vehicle collisions or uh, maybe a, a veteran coming home. We think about the PTSD. Is it is it things like that or is it more? It can fall pretty easily into two different categories. Sometimes what we call big T trauma, which are all the things you just listed, involved in car accidents, soldier in the battlefield. But maybe the more developing and maybe more nuanced uh, side of trauma that we're exploring is what's called little t trauma. And not called little t because it's less uh, impactful, but because it's harder to identify. That's almost the death by a thousand cuts analogy. So this is someone who maybe grew up in a family where there was emotional neglect. Just a child was overlooked for long periods of time. Or there was uh, emotional abuse of some kind, or where a child was falsely empowered and they could do no wrong. All of those fall into the category of developmental trauma. So that really just broadens the definition of trauma um, to include a whole bunch of stuff that, frankly, I, I don't think I'd ever talked about. You just uh, mentioned um, someone who may be falsely empowered as a type of trauma. Um, mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a lot more there than than we first think about. So is this just something we're, we're, that happens in childhood um, uh, and then it manifests later or, or what, when does this happen to somebody? 
typically when we talk about developmental trauma, we're talking about some things that occurred before the age of 18. And so the trajectory gets set very early, and then that trajectory plays out with sometimes some really harmful and negative consequences throughout the entire lifespan, unless there's some healing that takes place. So you talk about these things manifesting later on in life. Um, can you can you dig a little bit deeper on that? How does it manifest uh, later on in life? Sure. What, what should I be looking for in my life if I think maybe I've experienced trauma? I don't know. Uh, what are those symptoms maybe that I'm looking for? Yeah, so there can be a, quite a wide variety, but I'll plot a few examples of ones that are pretty common. Let's say someone grows up, grows up in a family where they are routinely overlooked and not seen. Maybe they were the child who did everything right, and so the parents just thought, well, they got it all under control. I don't need to pay as much attention. And there's not that attunement, that nurture that they really needed to receive. That doesn't happen. And so later in life, they seek that nurture. They seek that attention in ways that may cause them harm or it moves into an unhealthy kind of dependency in romantic relationships later in life. Uh, This can also show up, let's say, in families where there's a high level of rigidity, lots of expectations, but low levels of empathy. There's not a lot of connection. That often shows up as addiction or kind of the rebellious, uh, then I'm just going to take it to the extreme uh, because they never really learned moderation or what attunement and, and nurture feels like. And thus, by extension, they don't know how to give that to themselves. So it sounds a lot like there's some sort of balance that uh, has never happened for this person one way or the other. Uh, just playing devil's advocate here. What do you say to somebody that says this sounds a little bit too Freudian, um, uh, nature versus nurture, it's a, it's a bunch of baloney. People just need to get over these things that have happened to them, pull, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and you know, by the grace of God, we're going to move on together. Sure. What, what do you say to individuals like that? Yeah, and I, I get that quite a bit, and that can be pretty challenging. It is helpful to actually turn them back to the physiology of what's happening. So maybe I'll start off with a few examples there. Before the age of six, the brain waves are actually different for the rest of your life, and they change at age six and move forward. And so the first six years of life, especially, you're kind of downloading the program that you operate out of in terms of how you view relationships, whether or not the world is safe, how to regulate your own emotions. And when that happens well, then that shows up as healthy functioning later in life. When that doesn't, then you have some of the complications that we already hit on. We'll be digging down into more today. You can actually measure that difference in the brain. Uh, Another piece of it, you can do brain scans and look at someone who has experienced a fair amount of developmental trauma. And when that takes place, it quite literally rewires the brain. Their brain does not function the same as someone who grew up in a very healthy, nurturing home. So to say, just kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, I'm not sure that fits with the evidence that we're seeing in front of us. So with that being said, I want to jump back to something you said. Uh, it manifests in these certain ways that you pointed at earlier, unless there's healing that goes on. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what that healing is? Is it just, I'm praying for healing, God heals me? Is it something I need to do? Um, what, is, how many books do I need to read? What, what does that look like mm-hmm. and, and what level? Yeah, excellent question. So coming from my faith background, I do believe that God is a huge part of that. 
although I believe God designed certain systems and plans for that healing to take place in, particularly in community. So when you have the wounding that is relational in nature, that healing often comes through understanding what that healthy relationship looks like. And not, it's not just the cognitive piece, though, that, although that is a huge part of it, getting your story straight and understanding where the trauma took place and what it looked like. But it also comes down to actually experiencing that at a deep gut core level. And that's the work of DART, Developmental and Relational Trauma Therapy. Um, but also that can be the, the domain of really healthy, solid connection, connections with people who are safe, who can hold your story well, are non-judgmental, and kind of replicate for you what you never received in childhood. Thinking about what we haven't received in childhood, you and I had talked a little bit, um, and I, I gave him a little teaser on the last episode, on episode two, about developmental roles in family mm-hmm. trauma, in childhood development. Can you help us kind of understand what's what's meant by the roles that we play in, in this developmental trauma? Absolutely. Maybe just a, a bit of groundwork to get to that. A lot of this comes from the work of Dr. Murray Bowen, who developed what's called family systems theory. And the basic premise is no one operates in full isolation. You operate in coordination with other people within your family system. And so there are certain rules and expectations that may very well be unspoken, but they're there. And so the roles that we play to make our family system okay are are kind of what we're digging down into today, especially when those roles are unhealthy. So I'll I'll throw out three of them that are probably the the most common ones that I see. And they are hero child, lost child, and scapegoat child. So let's start with the hero child. So I'm glad you started with the hero child because when I I heard you kind of talk about that in these roles, that sounds like a good thing. Um, Can you tell me why is a hero child bad? Great question, and it does seem counterintuitive. The hero child is an unfortunate thing because it puts the child in a role that no child should ever have to fill, and it puts the weight of responsibility for the family system just operating as it should on the child instead of the adult. And so the child becomes the hero that has to make the family system okay. That sounds like something that would be taxing, uh, now that you put it that way, on, on any individual, let alone, um, you know, we're talking about the kids, basically. Yeah, and it's really much more than any child is equipped uh, to handle. I mean, quite literally, their brains have not developed to the point to be able to rationally or emotionally deal with that kind of weight. And so usually this takes place uh, whenever the child is enmeshed with one or both parents. Sorry to keep interrupting you, but what does that mean yeah. about being enmeshed? What is what is that? At its core, enmeshment is a boundary collapse between two people. And so there's no distinction. It's hard to tell where you start and someone else stops. So you feel responsible for their emotions. They feel, feel responsible for yours. You take responsibility for their well-being, vice versa. And that, on the surface, that may sound like, oh, man, they're just really, really close. But if you were to put it down, and here's a very clinical word for you, it feels icky in the relationship. So icky, uh, you're, you can't find where you begin, someone else ends. Um, yeah, I can see how that might be unhealthy. This sounds like a concept that could probably be an entire episode. 
Um, and and I, I feel that with, with some of these, you talked about there's more roles than just this hero role. Um, what do those other roles look like? So a couple of them are surrogate spouse, essentially, where a child becomes, uh, let's say there's a, I'll make up a scenario here. Let's say there's a, a husband and wife go through a separation and their uh, son gets stuck in the middle of that. The mother may use the son as a confidant. And he knows all the information. He hears all the complaints about dad. He hears all the situations at work that are going on. And he's being asked in that moment to bear more than any child is equipped to handle. And same thing can happen with dad. So he hears all the negative things about mom. He feels responsibility for dad's emotions. And so he tries to regulate things and fix things in the relationship. Uh, It just feels really icky in the middle of all that. So with that, to, to kind of turn it around and correct me if I'm wrong, but this also sounds like something that could happen too if there's, you know, um, a death in the family uh, and somebody has to become the man of the house, uh, maybe not to that icky level, but just still another type of trauma where now he is the father figure for everyone there or for, you know, the female, the mother figure. Is, is that something that could happen as well? Yeah, absolutely. And then he becomes the hero of the home. He has to provide for younger younger siblings and make sure everything happens as it should. So these may overlap in a way as well. It's not you're just one role or the other. Absolutely. And it can be different for each parent. So you may be the lost child to one parent and the hero child to another. So one thing I want to, that I'm observing, and then, you know, we can, I want to move on to that, that other role that you're mentioning. Um, But these all have one thing in common so far. They're not that, that child's fault. Um, it's no fault of their own. They didn't put themselves in that situation, so to speak. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought out that distinction. Kids, this is the parent's job to help them understand what a healthy, functional life looks like. Kids are not developmentally capable of doing it. They haven't seen it. This is the learning stage where they're figuring that out. And sometimes, well, often in developmental trauma, you see the blame even for, let's say, problematic behaviors that come out of these roles being placed on the child. Well, you should have known better. You really should have done that. Well, no, the child was learning. He was learning at your feet. And so this is not his or her responsibility to carry. So looking forward to that that next role you're talking about, and I'm not sure how many roles there actually are, um, but what is that next role you were mentioning? So the next one is lost child, and this is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from hero child. So this is the child who withdraws from the dysfunction in the family, and they live inside themselves. And it looks like they got it all together, and so they, they may be quiet, they may do well in school, they just kind of fly under the radar, and because they fly under the radar, they don't receive the nurture and guidance and affection that they truly need. So they could very easily kind of retreat into a fantasy world of books, hobbies, games, TV, whatever. Um, But they often get lost in that isolation. So as someone who grew up playing a lot of video games and uh, spending a lot of time, you know, playing in the woods or whatever it may be, um, can you take me a little bit further? Because that kind of sounds just kind of normal to um, Mm -hmm. be out there just lose time maybe in a game or something. It doesn't sound that bad. Um, can you yeah. take me deeper into what, you, what you're talking about when it, as it relates to trauma, I guess? 
sure. Well, and we can even circle back and pick some of this up with Hero Child, but there are some positive aspects that come out of it. For example, Lost Child tends to be very creative, um, and they have a very rich imagination. They can be very flexible, laid back, independent. But here's the darker side of it. The darker side of it is they are always longing for, aching, and seeking to be seen, to be noticed. Even if they don't know how to do it, even if it's very quiet and laid back, there's a part of them that aches for that nurture that they never received. And so that can show up in a lot of unhealthy ways later in life, whether that be addiction, whether that be serial relationships. They're always a part of them that's trying to be noticed. And that sounds like, oh, man, there's attention seekers. That That's not it. It's so much deeper than that. It's a recognition at a deep, core, emotional level that they missed something that they really, really needed. So you touched on something interesting there where not every part of this is bad. I, I am mm-hmm. a hero child or I am that lost child. Uh, not every aspect of it is bad. Um, can you tell me a little bit why some of those things aren't bad? You touched on some good things that come out of it. How is yeah. it good is, is what I'm saying. How, how can yeah. it be redeemed? So maybe I'll, I'll put it this way. So you maybe you've heard the phrase, kids are resilient. And I'm not a super big fan of that phrase. I think the, the probably the more accurate way to say that is kids are adaptive. They find a way to survive. And so for the hero child, for example, to survive, they had to step up to the plate. They had to, quite literally, if they're into athletics, uh, they had to do everything right in in sports, in school. They put a lot of pressure on themselves to succeed. And so those adaptations often meant that they they are very high-functioning. Think CEOs, uh, diplomats, uh, high-ranking officers. These are the people that feel very driven. And so those traits that they ultimately, I should say, initially developed as a way to try and keep their family of origin okay because they had to be the hero in their family often makes them a hero in the, in the office, a hero in the, in the, on the battlefield, a hero wherever. And so there are some aspects of it that serve you well in certain places. Um, I'm thinking of some of the folks I've worked with over time. Some of them are uh, end up in the field of, of caretaking, like medical professionals, like doctors or ER docs, where the skills that they had to learn to take care of and think very quickly in situations because they were the hero in their family served them well in their job. But that doesn't mean that there isn't the damage that's done. For example, they often deal with high levels of anxiety and depression because of the self-induced weight that they have to carry to be the hero in all situations at all times. And it's interesting you're talking about, you know, physicians, ER docs, um, uh, some of those positions carry with them a high risk of being exposed to traumatic situations again. Um, so it's something they're familiar with, uh, and it doesn't affect them. So they think, um, but still re-traumatization, um, very, very real. Um, Mm -hmm. these roles, I, they're so interesting, first of all, because um, they almost sound like a personality test uh, to mm-hmm. me. Um, and, you know, not my my profession, not my specialty. But can you tell me maybe, because I know they're not, How? what is the difference between this and, and a personality test? 
Sure, that's a good question. So when you're talking about personality tests, you're typically talking about things like introverted versus extroverted, or how are you re-energized? Are you re-energized by solitude or by being around the company of other people? And you'll find introverts and extroverts in all of these categories. Um, you're also talking about uh, thinking versus feeling uh, when you're talking about personality. And again, you'll find thinkers and feelers in all of these three roles. Uh, it's the, probably the most common personality test is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And so uh, if you were to take an assessment that measured your personality type and uh, I think there's about 16 different personality types according to the Myers-Briggs, you would be able to find examples of all 16 personality types in each of these categories. So it's not so much about uh, what makes you tick in terms of personality. It's more about how did you adapt to the trauma that you experienced in childhood. So, and that's a great clarification. Let me follow up on that because I know some of our listeners are probably thinking uh, or, or identifying with maybe one, two, or all of the roles you've just mentioned. Um, and then, you know, come to find out it's not a personality test. I can't just go online and find out what role did I fulfill as a child and how do I deal with it? You know, do some home therapy here. Uh, yeah. is, I guess my question is, is there a place where our Grace Story community can go to get more information on where they fit in in the roles? Is it something they can do online? Is it something that, no, I need to do this safely with a counselor? What, what would be... Um, the next step for them for finding out where they fit in, in these role situations. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to throw out a, a few significant names here that you need to pay attention to when you're looking into this field. One is Pia Melody and Pia Melody was, was a lady. She uh, lives out in, in Arizona and she's the one who developed this model and kind of helped make sense of uh, developmental trauma. She's certainly one of the early pioneers in this. So this, all that we're talking about today is drawn from her work. Two people that took Pia Melody's work and adapted it into a kind of more commonly understood treatment modality, developmental and relational trauma therapy, are Jan Bergstrom and Dr. Rick Butts. And, and Jan Bergstrom just released a book called Gifts from a Challenging Childhood. And that is a tremendous resource for listeners if they want to do some more digging into this. So everything that we're talking about today, you can find in that book. And she does have a chart in there that can help you identify with your mom, which of these cat, uh, roles did you tend to uh, put on? With your dad, which of these did you tend to put on? And so it can be a really helpful resource. Uh, in addition to that, if you want to find someone who is a DART therapist, they can definitely help you do the deeper digging. And if you find that you just find, there's some trauma that you can't seem to move past or some pieces of your puzzle that you can't quite put in place, that's going to be your best bet. Find a DART-trained therapist. And uh, you are one of those DART-trained therapists, uh, as we mentioned. So uh, we're going to be giving some of Ryan's information here at the end of the show so you can get in contact with uh, the counseling uh, that he's a part of. Um, we're going to be back just after this message from our Grace Story Ministries sponsor, and then we're going to jump into a little bit more of uh, developmental trauma and the way it plays uh, into our lives today. So Grace Story Ministries is sponsoring this podcast, and they are uh, wanting you to know about the Grace Story community page on Facebook. 
just started up, this is a place where you can expect to find safe conversation. So honest questions and dialogue, live teaching, videos by our master's level and field experts, and so much more. Ryan Waters has already shared on there. We're going to have uh, LaShonda Suggs sharing about grounding. And then we're also going to have Sarah Fry. She's going to be back talking about some things to deal with your children uh, during this time of seclusion and quarantine. The men and women who are part of our email subscriber family have access to this. So if you haven't already, run over to the website, gracestoryministries.com and subscribe. So Ryan, big question coming back um, from the sponsor break. What would you say to people, um, and you know there's people like this, who say, you know, my parents, they did the best they could. I don't think we should talk down about my parents. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Um, and my family's fine, basically. Um, we're okay now. Um, kind of almost whitewash the situation, maybe, um, and they see it better than it might have been but still wonder why they have similar problems to kind of what you're talking about with developmental trauma. What do, what do you say to those people who are listening who fit that bill? Yeah, thank you for, that's a great question. And, and I hear that. I think it's important to distinguish between our family's best intentions and the reality of what happened. 95% of all parents out there, 98% even, do the best they can with what they got where they are. And so they're not intending to cause harm. They're not intending to cause trauma. And that's important to distinguish. Do you have two to 5% of parents who are just intentionally trying to wreak havoc? Yeah, they're out there. They're the ones you hear about in the news, but by and large, parents do the best they can. We're not intentionally trying to throw parents under the bus. What we are trying to do is just get the story straight to understand the reality of what happened and how that's showing up in your life today. Sometimes, uh, when Dr. Rick Butts, who I mentioned earlier, talks about rearranging the furniture and how you understand your past. You're not adding pieces, you're not taking pieces away, but you're just shifting how you view it that has the best ring of truth to it. So I'm not trying to, or I'm not recommending that we throw parents into the bus, but let's not minimize the pain. Let's not deny the pain. Let's just face reality for what it is. You talk about facing reality. And, and when you mentioned um, having the best of intentions, it reminded me of uh, an old country song by Travis Tritt, where uh, he talks about having the best of intentions all along and talks about all the things that he did wrong. And I remember hearing that song, um, you know, way back in high school and thinking, wow, this guy's a loser. Um, but he's explaining it all away with, uh, you know, I have the, I had the best intentions, but, you know, yeah. really thinking about what people intend to do, it's not on their heart to do us harm. Um, they're really trying to get it right. Um, and even as a parent now, you know, I get it wrong so much. Um, so I know, I know, and I'm right there with these people that, that, that make yeah. mistakes, um, cause we're all human. Um, but I do have the best of intentions for my kids and I want them to be better off than I am. And I think most people, uh, feel that way as yeah. well. And, and Can I throw in a couple of things there? Sorry to interrupt sure. you. Yeah. But there's one thing I think that's important to understand here. There is no perfect parent, and that's just reality. And when I hear you saying, and I wrestle with this too, like, oh, man, I see how I, I don't get it right with my own kids. I, I know that I can't be a perfect parent, but I do strive daily to be a good enough parent. 
so that my, my kids fully understand, or at least the, understand to the very best of my ability that they are loved, that they are precious, that they are beautiful. And I think that is an attainable standard. And you touch on something here that Amber talked about in episode two, when she's talking about her responsibility as an adult, when she grows up and becomes a parent and she's um, seeing these things that we've kind of talked about here uh, with her, her children and, you know, not wanting to them to give them the wrong view of God and she's wanting to raise them right. Um, and noticing these symptoms that you're talking about, these roles manifesting uh, themselves in her life now that she's an adult. And she talks about it's now her responsibility to do something about it. It's now she can't just ignore it or explain it away as, no, I had childhood trauma um, and that's somebody else's fault. While that may be, now it's your responsibility to take that next step. And I want to build on that. What is that next step for people here? Because we're just scratching the surface. I, I understand that on childhood tra- uh, developmental trauma in childhood. What is the next step for someone? You mentioned getting the, the book or um, looking at what role you might play. What would you tell someone who um, doesn't know where to go next but knows there's something there that they need to do? It can be really hard to make sense of your story on your own. We tend to live in an echo chamber, and so our reality is our reality. And until we have someone help us face and give us some perspective and face what reality truly is, uh, then we tend to get stuck in that pain. And it seems normal. I hear that all the time in my office. I grew up in chaos, but I didn't know it was chaos because it was all I knew. Well, talking to someone like a professional counselor who has the tools, who understands developmental trauma, is one of the best ways I know of to get unstuck from that pain. And there will be a lot of exercises, uh, a lot of experiential work. That can be very challenging, but it's some of the most rewarding work you will ever do. So if I was going to pick one thing that I would suggest people do who are feeling the pain of that, it would be reach out to a developmental trauma specialist who can help you make sense of that. And a little sidebar on that. How important, you talk about licensed counselors, how important is it to go to a Christian licensed counselor to you? This gets into how I make sense of the world. And so maybe I'll just give a quick view there. I view special revelation scripture to be the primary source of truth. God revealed in the clearest form possible how he wants us to live. And I think when we live according to his plan, life works out the best. That's just the bottom line of it because we're, we're following the instruction manual. In addition to that, he's given us general revelation, which are the sciences. You look at the world around you. You can see that there's a God of order and a God of love based on what you see in creation. And I would put developmental trauma specialists in pulling from that realm of knowledge. The church has always taught that all truth is God's truth. So if we find truth in uh, digging into developmental trauma, then I think, I don't think, I know that it's going to be in harmony with what God wants because God is not the author of confusion and God is the author of truth. So how those two things combine, I think having someone who comes with a faith background, Christian faith background, is going to be open and understanding of how that interfaces with your life in particular. 
for example, they're going to help understand if any of your trauma revolves around spirituality issues. They're going to be much less dismissive and much more attuned to how that shows up in your life. Also, they're going to be much more open to including uh, therapeutic techniques or ideas or conversation around faith than someone who would not have that, that personal faith background. Let me uh, throw you a little bit of a, a curveball on that. Um, we know that um, some of the trauma people experience in childhood is um, you know, from the church, from uh, a spiritual um, figure maybe. Um, what would you say to those individuals who are like, hey, my, my whole trauma is from the church. I want nothing to do with it. Why should I go to a Christian counselor? That just seems counterintuitive almost. Yeah, and I hear that. I really do. It, um, it reminds me of the words of Jesus who condemns very harshly those who bring harm to children. And so when I hear that, I think of how much that must grieve the heart of God to have the source of wounding be from what he intended to be one of the safest places of healing, the church. So first of all, I feel empathy and deep compassion for that. Second, I, I understand that if, if the wounding is around the church, that can be a really difficult place to think about going to someone within the church and seeking help. So I would recommend finding someone that you know, either from personal experience or from good referrals, to be very well aware, to be non-judgmental, to be caring and compassionate, and that who knows how to handle spiritual abuse spiritual trauma. At its core, spiritual abuse occurs whenever someone in authority takes that power and weaponizes faith for harm. And they, that often occurs through twisting passages of scripture, uh, using power to belittle or undermine the victim. It's some of the most horrific uh, trauma that I see show up in my office because it so dramatically affects worldview and how you make sense of the universe. Because if the very God that you thought you loved and served uh, is represented by someone who can be so cruel, then it makes you question the goodness of God. And so that can be a really deep wound to overcome. I agree with you. I, I can't even imagine, um, you know, having that view of God as, uh, you know, not even as bad as a dictator, but worse, you know, um, mm -hmm whatever that viewpoint is. Um, I know here at Grace Story Ministries, we are striving to um, get people back to that right view of God because many times God is the one that uh, is, is twisted or the view of him, the relationship with him is twisted from uh, many of the different traumas that, and, and roles that you, uh, you've laid out today. Before we get too much further down the road here, um, I don't want to forget that, uh, that other role that you were about to mention, um, the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. The scapegoat. Can you walk mm -hmm. us through that? Yeah. So another word for scapegoat is the black sheep of the family. And they're the one who gets blamed for all of the family's problems. So the scapegoat's tantrums, meltdowns, rebellions, whatever it may be, becomes an excuse for everything that goes wrong in the family. Or, and this is sometimes lesser observed, or maybe I should say it's harder to notice, but when, say you have a child with special needs or some kind of physical ailment, that takes a dramatic amount of time, 
those needs become the excuse for ignoring others in the family and neglecting other family needs. And then the child to get the children who get neglected are in this double bind because then they feel the pain of neglect, the pain of not receiving that nurture, but feel guilt as well because they understand the bigger picture of what's happening. Um, whenever problems arise, usually the scapegoat's name is the one that's going to be mentioned in that conversation. Uh, individuals who've been cast in that role, uh, they often engage in self-destructive patterns as adults, abusing drugs, alcohol, engaging in promiscuous behavior, or sabotaging relationships, jobs. Uh, they can show up usually as acting out rather than acting in. Yeah, when you're saying all these things, I immediately start thinking of a person who uh, just doesn't care, uh, or it seems like they don't care. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to blame me anyways. Let's do this. Let's get it over with. I get my punishment, and we can we can carry on, so I can get back to what I want to do anyways. Um, yeah. Uh, or you know, someone that doesn't even care if they take on the blame of something they didn't do. If the person's standing right there, yeah, sure, it's fine. Uh, I can take it. Um, and yeah, just learn to exactly. take it almost. And in that way, think back to family systems. They took all of the blame, all the responsibility for the family system so that the family system could maintain that balance. That's very dysfunctional, but that's the role they played in their family to make the family function okay. So let me ask you this, because we've talked about it with the other roles. There's something good in some of those mm-hmm. things. It doesn't sound like there's much good about this. Uh, is there anything <laughs> well, good in that? There actually is. They tend to have extra access to creativity because they think outside the box and really aren't afraid of criticism. They're also less prone to denial and are more likely to be honest. Uh, They often tend to be good humored and close to their feelings. Uh, They're usually the truth tellers in the family system and in life in general. So those are all some positive side effects. So that person that just says, you know, uh, the the truth teller you've talked about, you're going to get it. I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm not going to hold anything back. Uh, my feelings are this. Um, yeah, that does sound like a good thing. Um, maybe too much of a good thing sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so we've talked in this podcast uh, episode about the, the roles, what developmental trauma is, how it can manifest in your adulthood, in your relationships. Talked a little bit about where to go next with some resources, a book, and and then also finding what kind of specialist to go to. Um, before we uh, head on out uh, for this episode, can you tell us uh, a couple things? One, uh, what to expect in the next episode, um, which will be coming a few episodes from now, your next episode about developmental trauma, and then maybe a big takeaway. What If there was one thing you wanted someone to hear out of this episode, just starting out, what would it be? Mm-hmm. A little bit about what's coming up. I want to dig down into a little bit more of the physiology of what happens in the body and the brain around developmental trauma, because I think it's important to understand that this trauma does have very real, even physiological effects in your your body and in your brain. So that's important to understand because it's also one of the keys to knowing how to heal. When you understand what your brain does when it flips its lid, when it feels triggered by that pain and that trauma from the past, you better understand what's happening and how to deal with it. So we're kind of laying the groundwork for where do we go from here. Uh, as far as a takeaway that someone could, uh, could take away from this podcast today, I think it would be this phrase. Don't be afraid to get the story straight. 
don't be afraid to face reality. Because that's exactly what trauma tells you. Trauma tells you that you have to look away. You can't change because it activates the fear centers of the brain. But what it's doing is perpetuating the pain. And it can happen without even realizing it. So don't feel like you have to live in that pain. There is a solution. There is hope. That's um, wise words. And I'm sure that resonates with um, many of our listeners, if not all of them on some level. Um, I know that our listeners are going to be wanting this to be an episode uh, or the second episode with you to be next um, time it comes out in two weeks. These are going to be sprinkled out through the year, um, uh, this content, all the way up to conference um, in November. So be looking for them throughout the coming year as, as we listen further with Ryan. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to the next episode that you're on. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. And uh, guys, make sure you tune in in two weeks. Just before Memorial Day, that episode is going to be Aaron Perkins, uh, who served uh, in honorably in our U.S. Army. Uh, he's going to be joining us talking about rediscovering purpose in post-military life. He's got a free ebook for you, too, Uncovering Your Unchanging Value. Make sure you tune in next, uh, next episode for all of that. We'll see you next time.